You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Well, good morning and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Yes, happy Thanksgiving. You can say it back. It's okay. This could be a call and response sermon and that would be all right. Um, I grew up in the Northeast and growing up there um, where secularity is the law of the land, I was always glad for Thanksgiving because I could wish people a happy Thanksgiving anywhere I went (laughs) without offending anyone. (laughs) It's great. It's a relief. Uh, Maybe you have certain Thanksgiving traditions in your home, ones that you observed as a child and that you perhaps are now bringing back for your family as as an adult. I know of many families and um, family systems that make a habit of having each person, even if there are 20 people in the room, go around the table to say something that they are grateful for. And this is a really good practice. I would say this verbal gratitude is something wonderful. And yet, as we turn to our lesson, our first lesson for today, we see that God called his people Israel to back up their verbal gratitude with sacrificial action. Here in Deuteronomy 26, God calls his people to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. (laughs) The people of Israel are poised there in Deuteronomy 26 to enter the land of Canaan, the promised land that God had promised to give to their ancestor Abraham. Using miracles of nature, God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and then they'd been wandering in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan for the last 40 years as God's punishment upon their disobedient parents. Even though they experienced God's judgment there in the wilderness, though, they also experienced God's grace. God provided manna, quail, water from the rock. Moses also reminds them that in the wilderness, their clothes had not worn out. And their sandals hadn't worn off their feet. God had been good to them, despite themselves. And now that the old generation has died out completely, God was about to bring this new generation of Israelites to receive a land that was fertile, uh, that was desirable, that was not theirs, that they didn't deserve, and yet he was going to give it to them. And after retelling their history as a nation and then repeating the law that the Lord had given at Mount Sinai, Moses warns them, in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, when the Lord your, your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you um, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Elsewhere, Moses urges them to take care, lest not only they forget, but they take credit for the abundance that they have, uh, forgetting that it was given to them by God. And so for this reason, Moses puts in place a law of tithing. The Israelites, as we read, were to take the first fruits of their harvest, bring them to the Lord's house, and then leave them there as an offering. The goodness of the land came from the Lord in the first place, and so the law was just to give back 
to God what was already his, and even to give back a fraction of what it was that he had given. This law served as a stopgap measure for human nature, which would be quick to take credit for God's grace, especially once the need of the wilderness had worn off. Well, as the people of God today, we are not a geopolitical nation, a theocracy like Israel. No, instead, as Christians, we are a composite group of people from many nations from, um, who have put their trust in the truest Israelite, Jesus Christ. The land that we stand to inherit cannot be drawn with earthly boundaries, but exists wholly on the other side of Jesus' second return, God's judgment day, and the recreation of all heaven and earth. The New Testament then looks at this life as our wilderness and, looking, and looks at the next life as our promised land. So that being said, even though we live in the wilderness always in this life and we look forward to the promised land in the next, I do think that we each individually tend to go through different seasons in life, seasons that I could say would be marked either by being a wilderness season or a season of plenty. Again, remember, the wilderness is a barren land where the reality of sin's curse manifests itself through brokenness, through disobedience in individual lives, or through the corruption in human institutions and governments, or in the fallenness of creation itself, things like tsunamis and terrible hurricanes. Someone in the wilderness might feel as though they are wandering aimlessly, without purpose, living living under judgment, homeless weighed down with sorrow, experiencing even the illness and decay of their own bodies, or toiling but never having enough. If this is you today, if today you feel like right now you're in the middle of the wilderness, then I pray that in the midst of your suffering you also experience God's love and his faithfulness, even as the Israelites experience the gracious provision of their basic necessities. When I look back on my own life, I certainly have wandered through many wilderness seasons. And I think of one season in particular when I was a struggling and unemployed actor living in New York City. Um, I was living off of the cash tips that I made waiting tables. And if you haven't, uh, if you don't know this, rent in New York City is very expensive. There's a whole musical about paying rent in New York City. I remember going to the grocery store with the $10 in cash that I had budgeted for my weekly groceries. And I remember standing in the grocery store, also very expensive, and thinking, okay, what do I get? What kind of protein do I get? Do I get the eggs or the cheese? Or, or should I spring for some meat this week and have to live off of some canned soup as well? What was I going to do? It was not only a materially uh, challenging time for me, but I was also deeply lonely because I was 22 and I'd just come from college where I had this whole group of wonderful friends, lifelong friends, and we had spent so much, we had had so much fun for four years. And then here I was in a sea of 18 million people, and I didn't know anyone. Um, So I felt so lonely. And yet, even though it was a time of struggle materially and emotionally, I remember that spiritually it was a beautiful time. I remember pouring out my heart and in my journal. I remember spending lots of time in scripture because I needed the consolation of God's loving presence. Um, I felt so alone, and yet he was so gracious to me in showering me once again with his love. And so miraculously, during that time, I was not dismayed. I wasn't discouraged. I didn't end up depressed as I could have. Miraculously, I never also materially, I never missed paying rent during that time. And I even 
managed to pay off student loans. Somehow God was so gracious in his provision for me during that time. Um, And today, when I think about wilderness seasons, I can't help but think of uh, the pilgrims, of course, being Thanksgiving. At the first Thanksgiving, they celebrated their own deliverance from the wilderness and God's provision for them in the midst of great danger. They celebrated the abundance of their first harvest, too. William Bradford wrote about this wilderness experience in crossing the Atlantic Ocean and surviving that first winter in New England. And he writes, Being thus past the vast ocean and a sea of troubles before in their preparation, they had now no friends to welcome them, nor inns to entertain or refresh their weather-beaten bodies, no houses or much less towns to repair to, to seek for succor, What could not sustain them but the Spirit of God and his grace? May not and ought not the children of these fathers rightly say, Our fathers were Englishmen which came over this great ocean and were ready to perish in this wilderness. But they cried unto the Lord, and he heard their voice and looked upon their adversity. Let them therefore praise the Lord, because he is good and his mercies endure forever. Yea, let them which have been redeemed of the Lord show how he hath delivered them from the hand of the oppressor. When they wandered in the desert wilderness, out of the way, and found no city to dwell in, both hungry and thirsty, their soul was overwhelmed in them. Let them confess before the Lord his loving kindness and his wonderful works before the sons of men. What a wonderful testament to the faithfulness of those first um, pilgrims coming to, the, to, the, um, to America at the, in the midst of their adversity. Um, in, in, on the other side of their adversity, they called out in thankfulness um, because the Lord had heard their cry of need when they were suffering. Well, maybe you have experienced uh, a material or emotional or spiritual wilderness, or maybe you are experiencing one right now. Or maybe you find that you're living in a season of plenty, and yet even a season of plenty on this side of heaven doesn't do um, much justice to the promised land that awaits us. The promised land of Canaan was a fruitful and abundant land. Because of all of the rivers, there was so much farmland. That's why it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, There were cows. There were bees doing their work. When the Israelite spies went to scout out the land for the first generation that was brought out of Egypt in Numbers 13, they reported back to Moses and the others that the land was a good land, and they even brought ripe grapes and figs as proof. Well, in its material provision, the promised land also has a spiritual importance because it signifies the reversal of God's curse. Remember that the land would be um, difficult to bring fruit from. It would be um, one in Genesis 3 that would cause man to labor and to toil to bring out just enough food to eat. And so the promised land signifies a reversal of that curse in Genesis 3. Well, the Israelites experienced this reversal of sin's curse in the promised land for a very small, short period of time and only in a very temporary way. It points to eternal life and our time in eternity with the Lord Jesus. But the promised land gave um, uh, a sense of God's material and spiritual abundance. And so here on this side of heaven, if you are currently living in a personal version of the promised land, a foretaste of God's eternal abundance, then it might look like this. 
and maybe you don't think that you're living in a season of plenty, but when you look out at the world around us, when we know how much people live off of in other parts of the world, then we could say, yes, we are truly blessed. Maybe you are able to pay off all of your bills while still setting aside savings for the future. Maybe even you employ other people, whether to clean your house or mow your lawn. Maybe you feast on a variety of exotic foods. We will today for sure. And maybe you have more clothes than you can wear in one laundry cycle. Well, in the global economy, these are signs of wealth. Maybe you have such good health that you don't need to regularly take medicine. Or maybe the blessing that you experience is not material necessarily. Maybe you have a relatively peaceful marriage. Um, the more you get to know other people's marriages, maybe you give thanks for your own marriage. Maybe you have loving children who want to spend time with you. Grandchildren who smile when they see you. Um, maybe you have a group of friends that are deeply invested in each other's lives. These are all signs of God's provision and a spiritual and emotional abundance. So if you, like me, currently find yourself in a relatively abundant season, then here in this uh, foretaste of the promised land, we must take heart like the Israelites, not to forget the Lord who has provided all that we have. God calls us, too, to give proportionally and to give sacrificially, whether we are living in the wilderness or in a land of abundance. Giving in this way is an act that requires great faith especially if we are barely making ends meet. But even if we are used to having more than enough, sometimes we might fear adding another line item to our budget because it will take away some from storing up for the future. We tithe off the top of our income because it's a way of experiencing the mercies of the wilderness, even though we might find ourselves in the relative abundance of a, a provisional promised land. Giving back to God in this way, it's an act of faith in his ability to provide for us for the future, even while it's also an act of great devotion out of gratitude for the grace that he has already given us in the past. There are two New Testament portraits that illustrate the same kind of faith that's found in Deuteronomy 26. In Mark's gospel, Jesus finds himself in the temple with his disciples, and they're watching as a, tiny, as a widow places two tiny coins, coins that amount together up to a penny, and she places them in the treasury as an offering to God. Jesus then uh, explains this to his disciples. He says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This widow's literal sum was less than that of everyone else giving financial gifts to God, and yet it was a greater proportion of her whole income. By giving all that she had, she was radically putting her whole trust in God's sovereign ability to provide for her. And the second portrait, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is at supper with a Pharisee, and a woman of the city, a sinner, comes in, and she is weeping. She's weeping over his feet, and she's drying them with her unbound hair. And then she pours on Jesus' feet an extremely expensive ointment. The ointment might very well have cost as much of her, as her whole dowry, a fortune. Like the widow, she gives Jesus everything she has. Jesus then tells the Pharisee a parable to help him understand what this woman did. Jesus concludes the parable by saying, He who is forgiven little loves little. The woman 
had clearly received grace from Jesus, and she responded by giving everything to him. She had been forgiven much, and she loved much. As many of you know, my father is also a minister, and in one of his churches, they decided once to have a rummage sale. And so they advertised for it on the radio and in the newspaper so that people from all of the surrounding towns would know about it. Um, And on the day of the sale, there the congregation had donated so many items that they filled up the whole nave. It was hard to walk through to try to look at them all. And then even they had a big lawn outside the church, and the lawn was filled with things. They even had a couple of cars um, that had been donated. And as people, guests, came to hunt for treasures, there were parishioners ready to greet them, ready to help them find exactly what they needed. Some people might have been looking for a dining room set or pots and pans for their kitchen or, or china even. Um, and when they found out what they wanted, the guests, um, when they found that item that they wanted, the guests would turn to the church member who was helping them and ask, how much for this item? Then the church member would look them straight in the eye and say, Oh, that right there is free, just like God's love for you. As it turns out, the goal of their sale wasn't to raise money for the church like so many other churches do, but rather their goal was to evangelize and reach out to the people in their neighborhoods that might have been in financial need. When they were gathering items for this sale, and they called it a tagless sale, because nothing had a price tag on it. When they called for these items, my father would urge them not to give the things that they didn't want, um, but rather to give things um, that they uh, might still have some use for, things that they actually would miss having in their own homes. My dad said, give in such a way that it hurts, because this way, what they were giving away wasn't their cast-offs. It was um, good stuff, good quality furniture, cars, cars that weren't even lemons, <laughs> but had several thousand miles left in them, lamps that weren't burnt out, even nice china. Some people even bought things new just for the sale and then gave them freely away. They didn't count the cost, um, but they gave. They were encouraged to give I think about that with our food drive is coming up in December, and it's an inside joke within the staff of the church that we always get um, cast-offs from people like capers or caviar, things that um, have expired even from people's closets. And the people that are receiving this food, they don't want that kind of food. They don't want that kind of food. And so we're always blessed when someone goes out and buys a case of peanut butter or something that people actually use and want and know how to cook with. And then that's, a, that's more of a sacrificial kind of gift. Well, God's love is free, even like those free gifts given at the tagless sale. And God himself is the one who hasn't skimped on the budget of his love for us. But in Jesus Christ, he himself has paid the highest price to buy us back from sin and death. Our whole lives, not just when we come to church on Sunday, not just in giving something for the offering, no, our whole lives are meant to be given back to God in thanksgiving for his sacrificial love for us. Giving back to God everything, giving everything back to him, or even giving in a way that it hurts, requires of us a faith like that widow, a faith that looks to God's sovereign ability to provide. It also requires a grateful devotion 
like the sinful woman, a grateful devotion that remembers the grace that God has given us and responds in joyful thanksgiving. Well, one final word, just so you know, we don't have either faith or devotion apart from God's gracious gift in Jesus Christ. This is not something that I'm asking you to drum up out of your own emotional and spiritual resources. For me, when this kind of wholehearted Christian lifestyle presents itself to me, I am almost always, no, really always, overwhelmed by it. And when I'm overwhelmed by it, it's because if I were to try to live it out, I'd be living it out in my own strength. And that is not what God wants. The only thing when I feel overwhelmed by the call to the um, Christian life, the only thing that helps me at that point is to turn to God, to repent once again of my selfishness, and to receive once again the mercy of his great love. We can only pour out love back to him that we have already received ourselves. As John says in his first letter, we love because he first loved us. Well, let's pray. Let's pray that we receive once again this morning uh, the love that God has for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for um, your, uh, your life poured out for us, that greatest gift of all. And we thank you, Lord, that in, a, in response, you not only are the one that's given us that first gift, but you, by the power of your own Holy Spirit, are the one that changes our hearts, despite ourselves, to be able to give even when we don't want to. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do that work once again in our hearts this morning, that you would give us the grace to receive all of who you are and all of what you've done for us. And then, Lord, would you also give us the grace um, to pour out our own lives uh, as an offering back to you an offering of love and gratitude. And we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.